Dr. David Mack is co-founder and CEO of PMV Pharma, a biotech company that has been finding cancer solutions by harnessing the power of the P53 protein. Previously, Dr. Mack was a pivotal member of the polymerase chain reaction invention group at Cetus, which is now Novartis. Dr. Mack has also served as a general partner at the venture capital firm Alta Partners, which specializes in biotech investment. Welcome, Dr. Mack. It's really great to have you here. Ah, it's a real pleasure to be here, Lucas. Thanks for having me. So I want to just jump right in. Um, your company describes the P53 protein as the guardian of the genome for its important role in regulating cellular life cycles. Could you explain um, what P P53 does in a healthy cell and also how you're manipulating the protein to help fight cancer? Yeah, great. Well, thanks for that. Um, so P53 is referred to as a guardian of the genome and its job is to survey um, your molecular network for any type of damage. Uh, and so this could be intrinsic or external insult, uh, exposure to UV radiation, uh, an a, uh, some type of oncolytic event. Uh, P53 senses that and pauses the cell cycle in a cell, so the replication cycle of a cell, and surveys the genome for any type of lesion that might lead to cancerous growth. Um, if it can repair that lesion, it does. Uh, and then the, the cell goes on its happy, uh, 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 merry way of being a healthy cell. Uh, if it deems that there's too much damage to the genome due to, again, to this intrinsic or external event of DNA damage, uh, it will tell the cell to kill itself, cell suicide, right? So its job is to ensure the integrity of your DNA, as well as the faithful distribution uh, of uh, daughter chromosomes to new cells, right? So it, it makes sure that your cells are healthy and replicate correctly. And if they don't, to basically kill itself, which is a process called apoptosis or cell, cell death. Um, so that's P53's job. Uh, it's a pretty important job. And so it's not surprising to hear that over 50% of all human cancer has a mutant P53, right? So if you want to go down that road path of becoming a cancer cell uh, and a tumor, you basically have to get rid of P53. So what we'll focus on in this discussion is mutant P53s, um, but the cancer cells figured out on the other side, if you do not mutate your P53 gene, how to get rid of the P53 function separate from mutating the gene. So, which is a less efficient uh, uh, process for a cancer cell, hence why mutant P53 is most frequently seen in, in human cancer. Um, uh, my point there is just that a cancer cell does not want P53 around. So, um, so let's focus on mutant P53s. So what the cancer cell has done there, uh, and let me just back up one step, so P53 is a transcription factor. So what does that mean? So it, it is a protein that binds to DNA and turns on other genes, okay? So its job is to turn on a network of, of genes that result in cell death, right? 
So it activates sensors that say, how, how much in trouble is the cell? Uh, you know, again, not too, too much trouble, so let's fix it. So it turns on genes that can do that. Uh, and, if, and if the damage is too great, as we discussed, it can also say, I'm turning on genes that are gonna kill this cell, all right? Okay, so those are apoptotic genes or cell death genes that are P53 mediated. So if you're gonna go down this path of becoming a tumor, you, you need to get rid of P53. And so the lowest energy event to lose a gene's function is a single nucleotide mutation, right? So uh, P53 is a transcription factor, as I said, it is a DNA binding protein. So what we find is in the most frequently seen uh, mutations of P53 that they, they occur in the DNA binding domain, okay? Um, and they are the vast majority single nucleotide mutations resulting in a single amino acid substitution. Okay, so what does all that mean? What that means is you know, proteins are made up of amino acids and are coded from DNA, right? So that DNA code tells the cell which amino acids to put together to make a functional protein, and in this case, P53. And so what the cancer cell has done is it's taken the lowest energy event possible, single nucleotide mutation, as opposed to like deleting a gene or chopping you know, half of it away, um, is simply a single nucleotide uh, mutation resulting in just a single component of this protein, at one single amino acid change. So the difference between happy, healthy cell and a particularly aggressive tumor is a single amino acid substitution in P53, right? What that amino acid substitution does is it causes either a, a misfolded or a thermally unstable P53 protein at physiological temperature. So basically it's a broken P53 protein that has lost its wild type function. What's wild type? Wild type is its normal function. So you'll hear people refer to wild type P53 versus mutant P53. Um, so it has lost its wild type function, hence its function to be guardian of the genome. So our job is to discover and develop small molecules that recognize that mutant P53, that structurally correct it so that it has it adopts a wild type-like form. Remember that single amino acid substitution has either caused a completely misfolded or disaggregated P53 protein at physiological temperature, right? And so what we want are small molecules that restore that wild type form, fix that broken protein and restore that ability of P53 to be the guardian of the genome to induce P53 mediated cell death or apoptosis in the setting of a cancer. What we also ask of that drug, that small molecule, is it does not interact with wild type P53, which is in normal cells, right? So by definition, your tumor has a mutant P53, at least half of everyone's tumors do, right? And we'll talk about how we identify patients, but we know if you have a broken P53 and which one it is. Um, and then we ask that this drug repair that, but does not interact with wild type P53 that is in your normal cells that may cause some side effects. So we have a thesis here where our target is exclusively in the tumor and we have the promise to spare normal tissue. 
Okay, so this is an approach that is referred to as precision medicine, uh, and specifically in my field is targeted oncology, right? So let's move now from the broken protein, uh, what we ask of the drug, and which patients we treat, right? So our, our lead clinical candidate, which is about to enter a uh, phase two registrational trial, uh, just completing its phase one dose escalation. It's against the Y220C mutant P53 allele. So as I mentioned earlier, we're working on the top 10 most frequently seen mutant P53s. They're referred to as the hotspot mutants. And collectively, they represent greater than 25% of all human cancer. Um, they are each 10 independent, unique mutants of P53. So that amino acid substitution takes place in a different position in each of those mutants, creating a unique protein target. And are those the only 10 known or are those the 10 most likely to elicit drug response? So it's a great question. There's over 300 identified P53 mutants, uh, but these 10 represent the vast majority of the patient population. Got it. Um, and so, and, and hence called the hotspot mutants. They, they tend to be hotter, right, than the others. You, some of the other mu mutations are very rare, whereas these are incredibly common. Most common. Right? So our, our, and we take an allele by allele based uh, uh, approach, which means that of those 10 hotspot mutants, we treat each of those 10 as a unique protein target Although we ask the same question, right? Because they're all P53. Um, and that's the question I articulated earlier. So our lead program is the Y220C hotspot mutant of P53. And just for quick nomenclature, uh, the first letter refers to the wild type amino acid, that's a tyrosine at position 220 that has been mutated to a cysteine, right? And as a result of that, amino acid substitution, that mutation, that P53 that's normally tyrosine in the wild type has now a hole in it. That, that cysteine creates a hole in P53 of which, not to get too much into the weeds, but a water molecule can embed itself and it destabilizes that P53 molecule and it loses its wild type activity. And so what we have developed with this first-in-class small molecule, PC14586, uh, is a molecule that very selectively and specifically binds to that pocket, that hole, and stabilizes P53 into its wild-type structure and restores its function, resulting in very potent tumor regression in a dose-dependent manner in preclinical cancer models, um, and what we have demonstrated in the clinic is that uh, very, or it's preliminary, but uh, very promising data that um, this approach uh, uh, results in robust tumor regression in, in Y220C patients in the clinic. Um, so, so just back to the clinic. So because 586 is so highly selective and specific for Y220C, those are the only patients that we enroll. So being your um, drug. Small candidate. molecule. Yes. So the actual drug, the, the novel chemical entity, NCE, uh, it, I'll affectionately refer to it as 586. So um, 
so it was designed to be highly specific and selected for Y220C containing patients. And those are the only ones we enroll. So we whole genome, we P53, uh, um, whole exon sequence patients to identify the status of their P53 gene. Half of every patient that we sequence will have a mutant P53. Um, and of those, uh, about 2% will be Y220C, okay? So, uh, so we sequence your P53 gene, your Y220C, you are a candidate for our drug and our clinical trial. If you are not, you are excluded. And that's because we know from preclinical data, if you're not Y220C, this, this drug's not gonna help you. So if you're wild type P53 uh, and a cancer or any of the other hotspot mutants, um, you will not respond to this drug. You need to be Y220C, okay? Uh, and hence the precision medicine targeted oncology approach. It's the right patient for the right drug at the right time. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, something we also uh, bring to the table with this particular mechanism of action of targeting amino P53 is that it promises to be what's called tumor agnostic, right? And what that means is that the activity of the drug and the biology underlying our approach is not unique to any tumor type. Uh, it is unique to the target, uh, to having a mutated Y220C, uh, um, P53 allele. And so whether you're breast cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian, pancreatic, et cetera, uh, you are eligible for this drug because if you have the gene, that means that you are a potential responder, uh, irrespective of your tumor type. And that is something that was borne out in, in this preliminary uh, uh, view of our dose escalation phase one human trial. And that is this, that we saw uh, activity, so this would be tumor regression in patients um, in uh, six different histologies. So uh, what does that mean? That means, again, you were enrolled into our trial because you are a Y220C containing uh, cancer patient. Um, we've seen responses in ovarian, prostate, pancreatic, breast, lung, um, endometrial. So there are a, um, a spectrum of tumor types that you know, we are targeting. And again, this is called tumor agnostic treatment. Uh, so we're very excited about that. Uh, I've thrown a lot at you. So, you know, the take home here is that, uh, and this is the first time P53 uh, has been therapeutically actionable after 40 years of biology. So my co-founder, my co-founder Arnie Levine discovered P53 in 1979. Um, and it's been hotly pursued as a, you know, a, a holy grail cancer target for over four decades. Uh, but it's been very challenging to target. And um, I think I know you, Lucas, understand that uh, we're fixing a broken protein, right? We're not turning something off that's hyperactive like kinase, which is, is hard, but we're pretty good at. Um, fixing a broken protein, this is, this is new ground. Um, right. And uh, so, so a couple important things. One is you know, we've demonstrated in the clinic that you can fix a broken protein and that specifically with P53 that will result in tumor regression at therapeutic doses. Uh, and secondly, that in fact, as promised, 
this mechanism of action is tumor agnostic, right? It, yep. You know, if you have a bro, if you have Y220C, you should be a responder, irrespective of, of what your tumor origin is. So, um, and the, both those things have been borne out. Um, we still have a long road to go to registration, but um, you know, we're we're excited, and the community's excited about the progress we've made today. So, I think I, I probably rattled on long enough here. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of questions to follow up on that. All right. <laughs> the first, and this is probably a little bit of a chemistry, a little bit of an oncology question, but um, what made it so that um, five eighty six was your very first candidate? Was that a happenstance of the chemistry was very productive, or was that a specific? chosen target that was yeah. most likely to elicit a response? Yeah, a great question. So um, when we started the company about nine years ago, um, of the hotspot mutants, there was a publicly available crystal structure to Y220C. Okay, Now that was developed by Sir Allen first, a very prominent bio, biochemist and protein biologist in the P53 field. Uh, he got a sir for this, uh, uh, cool. great guy. Uh, anyway, he had made public the crystal structure for Y220C. What we were able to do then is uh, obviously access that X-ray structure and we could visualize that hole, which was actually a crevice, okay? Um, and based on that, we took what's called the structure activity relationship approach, SAR. And what you do is you iteratively design uh, uh, chemical compounds that you think will fit into that crevice. Right. Okay? And, then, and then experimentally build out that molecule. So you start with something that's a really weak binder and you, it's like, okay, I think this is on target on mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and through cell biology and in vivo biology, you start building out that molecule until you get to a point where it looks and smells like a drug, right? You know, yep. you, you've got the activity that you want. You show that it's on target and on mechanism. You show the drug-like properties of your compound, meaning it has, we were going for an orally available compound, which is what we have. It's daily dosing. Um, you need to have the proper exposures of the drugs so that the tumor uh, sees the compound, et cetera. So there's a number of things you, you have to design into a molecule, including its selectivity and specificity for your target. But you weren't um, thinking of those things when you chose Y220C. It was mostly an availability of public data that led you there, it sounds like. Well, we knew where we had to go, which is right. what I just articulated. But that is where we had to start yep. to figure out where, you know, where we were going to end up. That's so uh, so you, it, it helps to have uh, a structure to work with. And so we've created multiple P53 crystal structures over these many years to other hotspot mutants, but it, it's an important starting point and hence that it, we had a Y220C crystal structure available to us. Thank you, Sir Alan for, first. And, uh, and that got us off really to, cool. to Y220C and 586. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about um, mutated p53 and how you're trying to restore function through small molecule therapeutics but one of your pipelines is going to try and target wild type p53 That's um, right. do you believe that successfully promoting anti-cancer activity in the life cycle of a cell could avoid cancer from inception or would this be a treatment for people who have already shown to be cancer positive yeah it's a great question huh prophylactic 
treatment for cancer. Uh, we talk about it a lot, but you no, know, the, the, the approach is a therapeutic uh, um, angle towards treating tumors that are wild type P53. So the most recent data would say that mutant P53 is about 50, 55% of all human cancer. Um, meaning wild type containing tumors are 45% of all human cancer. Um, and there's multiple strategies that a cancer cell takes to get rid of a functioning wild type P53 protein, right? Yeah. So we've talked about mutating the single nucleotide and the amino acid substitution. So that's the mutant P53. The wild type P53, so the target we're working on um, is called WIP1. Uh, so it's wild type P53 induced protein one, um, and it is a phosphatase. So what is that? That is a protein that uh, removes phosphates from other proteins. And in the case of P53, uh, that action inactivates wild type P53 activity. Uh, so WIP1 is amplified in 2% of all human cancer and 8% of breast cancer. So those particular cells make so much WIP1 that it chronically degrade or chronically turns off wild type P53 activity, okay? Um, essentially turning it off, right? So, so we're, we don't want to ignore that other half of of P53 driven cancer. So we, we are targeting WIP1 as a strategy in, in, in that area. There, there has been for now over a decade um, strategies uh, to target wild type P53 tumors against uh, a target called MDM2. Um, and what that does, there are cancers that Overexpress MDM2 again. You know, you're you're taking a protein and you're making way more than's normally made. MDM2 physically binds P53 and targets it for degradation. So here's another example where well, I've got wild type P53 around. I haven't mutated it, but I need to get rid of it. So you know what I'm going to yeah. do? I'm going to amplify a gene that hates P53 and wants to get rid of it. Okay. So even you weren't uh, kidding when you said the cancer gene cannot keep P53 around. Even yeah, you can't. I mean, because so even if you have an oncogene, its job, its job is to say, there's an oncogene here that's hyperactive. It's like, I sense that I'm going to kill the cell. Right. 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 So you've got the driver. You got you got something putting its foot on the gas pedal. Now you got to take away the brakes. Right. And the break, the break is P53. Right. And so 55% of cancers have the, um, something wrong within the P53 protein itself, but you're saying that the other 45 essentially need to inhibit it in a way that isn't mutating at the P53 gene itself. You're a great orator. Absolutely. You nailed it. Fascinating. It's really interesting. Cause I, I was assuming going into this, that like, if the P53 molecule was mutated, it just made it extremely high chance of cancer, but there were possibilities that you could get around it. But it's sounding like that's not the case. Every single cancer gene, um, every single tumor has to go It's hard to get around P53. It's fascinating. Um, so next is, a, uh, my next question is a little bit bigger picture, uh, but where do you see small molecule therapeutics fitting into the future of precision oncology as compared to therapies that are non-organic um, chemistry based? 
Yeah, you know, there's room for everything, right? So one of our, our best drugs in oncology are the checkpoint inhibitors, right? And specifically anti-PD-1. Um, you know, the number one drug in, in, in that area is Keytruda uh, from Merck. Uh, that is an antibody and it, it's highly effective. Um, but, you know, antibody therapeutics, one is, you know, they're very expensive uh, as, as a drug to manufacture. Um, you need to have an infusion. Uh, so it, it's a big burden on the patient. Uh, if it works, great. Uh, it's all worth it. Uh, but small molecules are more convenient and more cost effective, right? So small molecules will always be um, a strategy employed against multiple different targets. Some targets are more amenable to antibodies. Some are more amenable to small molecules. So for example, antibody therapeutics, your target needs to be on the cell surface, right? Because that's the only place you know, you, an antibody can access a protein, right? An antibody can't go in a cell. That's very um, limiting. Small molecules go in cells, right? So if you have an intracellular target, that's a small molecule candidate. If you have a membrane associated, surface associated target, you're a candidate for small molecules, but most, more attractively for an antibody. So there, there's space for both. Small molecules, again, you know, that, that it just historically has been um, a, a drug class that's been very popular in oncology. Uh, again, most of our targets are hyperactive kinases, right? Uh, which are, are, are vast majority are intracellular targets. Uh, and we know how to build inhibitors against these targets. Um, and in fact, you know, when you go look at the field of well-known oncology drivers, um, you know, you're going to find five, six, seven approved products, right? Because, you know, we are good at, 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 at discovering kinase inhibitors and there's always room for improvement on safety and efficacy. So, you know, every major pharma has got to have one, right? So, and then, then you're always battling for best in class in that case. Um, and uh, as opposed to first in class. Uh, which is where we're at because there's no one else doing what we're doing. So, um, but small molecules are, you know, they're the cornerstone of oncology uh, drug discovery. Uh, uh, antibodies are great. You know, Seattle Genetics, we'll see if they get acquired for $40 billion from uh, uh, Merck in the coming, coming weeks. That's the buzz. Uh, and they're purely antibody therapeutics and have been incredibly successful over these many decades. Uh, you know, great for the patients. Um, but small molecules are definitely the cornerstone. So they're here to stay. Yeah, they'll always be around. So I wanted to ask you about your experience in the 1980s working at Cetus. <laughs> um, I wanted to know what was it like to work with Carrie Mullis? And did you guys realize the importance of the PCR discovery you had made when it was first published? I'm just fascinated to hear about that. Yeah, I, I think we did. So I, I was fortunate enough to be on the PCR discovery team in the mid eighties um, in uh, Emeryville, California, right outside Berkeley. Um, and so we put the team together because Carrie did come through the door once, one day with this idea. Uh, and he and one technician, Fred Faluna, um, you know, went to Carrie's lab and tried to get a proof of concept, a, a polymerization reaction. So 
what what Carrie Carrie definitely invented PCR, right? I mean, he should get all the credit for it. He also invented PCR contamination. So what does that mean? That means that when you take, it's a needle in a haystack approach, right? There's like, you got a needle in a haystack and you got to find it. Uh, so the approach was, let's make a needle stack. Let's just make more needles. Let's find the needle and make tons of them. And then it's easy to find a needle, right? So it's an amplification of a small, you know, a small piece of DNA, right? Um, what happens is when you, when you achieve that, you make a ton of this DNA and it gets all over the place, right? And it contaminates uh, all of yes. your samples. So what Carrie could never demonstrate was that it really worked, right? Because he couldn't have a negative control. All of his control, there were no controls. Everything was positive, right? But what everyone recognizes, holy crap, this actually worked. You can actually amplify DNA through the PCR approach and make lots of it. Cheaply so, too. What's that? Cheaply and efficiently. Yeah, exactly. It's so, so, so what we do is we created this group to actually get it to work. Uh, and of course, Carrie was part of this group, which was uh, a lot of fun and pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, it was a super exciting time. I, I remember Carrie coming into group meetings, actually carrying a gel in his bare hands and putting it on an overhead projector, right? Um, and, and, and the reason that I, that was so alarming in those days is um, to visualize a DNA gel in the 80s, you uh, had to use something called ethidium bromide, which is a carcinogen. Mm -hmm. uh, so you really yeah. shouldn't be handling something without a glove on that's been in ethidium bromide. So, uh, so Kara is quite a character. Um, but anyway, we did get it, we did get it to work. Um, and then the fun part came, which was uh, we were the only ones who had access to the technology. So our jobs were figure out a thousand applications for it, right? So yeah. cloning, diagnostics, you know, it goes on and on and on and on. Oh gosh. Uh, it's easier to think of things in like molecular biology that don't use PCR. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, that's that, right. And, everything is PCR based. And so, you know, a scientist, Shirley Kwok and I had the privilege of probably doing more manual PCRs than any other human being on the face of the planet to date. So in the early days, we didn't have a thermally stable polymerase, right? Which is TAC polymerase, Thermus aquaticus wow. polymerase. Um, we had to use normal Pol3, which is uh, thermally sensitive. So as you go through a cycle, right? So you denature the DNA by heat, you, you lower the temperature to encourage the annealing of primers to the target DNA, right? And then at the optimal temperature for polymerase, you extend the DNA and then you denature it again and go through another cycle. So right. polymerase chain reaction. Problem is every time you denature, you kill the polymerase. So you would have to manually deliver wow. to every tube another milliliter of polymerase. Oh, right? And you also, the PCR in modern day is based off of the invention of the thermal cycler, which you didn't have, I presume. No, we, we actually developed, I've got a picture of myself with the first one we call Taxilla uh, because it went through so much uh, uh, thermally stable polymerase. Um, so it started like this. And, so it's a fun story. So we were we were in, in a group meeting 
Shirley and I were, you know, just going, you know, you know there's these thermally stable E. coli, right? Why don't we look at some of those polymerases, right? They grow in springs, hot springs. And then Randy Saiki, great scientist on the team, jokingly said, well, we should just scrape the boilers here at Cetus and get a thermally stable polymerase. No way. Well, and then another great scientist in the room, David Gelfand, said, Thermus aquaticus, that's a thermally stable E. coli that has a thermally stable polymerase. He purified it from Thermus aquaticus and that's where attack polymerase started. So it was actually purification of a polymerase of which, so every vial was incredibly valuable to us. Um, and then finally Randy cloned it, uh, of which then it was easy to make kajillion gallons of it. But in the early days, it, it, it was, you know, like platinum. Um, so, so we made the leap to tap polymerase, and hence then we needed to automate it, right? And hence the thermocycler. And previously, were you like physically moving things between three different ovens? I was. So wow. they were hot plates. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so you had a hot plate for yeah. denaturation. You had a cooling plate, and then you had one for uh, polymerase extension. And then you just went and did it again. Yeah. Except you would have to... So you put a drop of mineral oil on top of each of your reactions so because you're heating and cooling. So you don't want the reaction to evaporate, but then you have to pipette through mineral oil. It just was a, night a technical yeah. nightmare. Even modern day with like, you can't, it's very difficult to set up PCR with no contamination. I can't even imagine opening the tubes. Oh yeah, yeah, no. And in, in the day, I mean, we, you know, we came up with all kinds of solutions for for um, preventing or at least minimizing uh, PCR contamination, including, oh my gosh. I mean, we created the entire industry uh, of filtered pipettes, right? So pipettes that have a, a barrier between the actual pipette man itself and the liquid, because what was happening is DNA was getting sucked up into your pipette man, right? So you're redistributing it without knowledge right, with a regular pipette. So oh, wow. anyway, lots of little things like that to address PCR contamination, which was a very big deal in the beginning. Um, you wow. know, it almost didn't happen because there was so much DNA all over the place. Yeah, it's almost hard to prove. Well, that is just a fascinating story. I, I yeah, it was fun. It, it was very exciting. Um, and, but Carrie, Carrie was a real nut. But it was fun to have beers with. <laughs> He would come up with really crazy ideas, you know, right before he left, he, he was like, David, here's an idea I have. Um, dead celebrity DNA jewelry. Um, and he actually tried to do this. So he wanted to get like a follicle of Elvis's hair and Marilyn Monroe's and uh, PCR, you know, repeated DNA from it and then put it in like jewelry, oh like earrings or rings. And it would be Elvis DNA in your ring, right? <laughs> And he, he actually tried to pursue it, but uh, the estates wouldn't let him, like the Elvis Presley estate would not let him have any DNA, right? Uh, so, uh, but anyway, it was something he was very serious about. Uh, but he always had crazy stuff like this.
Fascinating. Yeah. It's like a, that's like a 1980s PCR version of buying Justin Bieber's used tissues on eBay. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's fascinating. Well, I'm so glad I got to talk to you, Dr. Matt. So interesting. Um, I'm really glad that I got to hear about your experience with PCR and also just thank you so much for going into depth on P53. I found that super interesting and it seems really promising. Well, I I appreciate your uh, invitation to participate. It's been a lot of fun for me. And uh, I look forward to the rest of your series, your podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Mack. All right. Take care, Lucas. Thanks again. Cheers. You too.